0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Welcome, welcome to the LSE and welcome to this event, which will discuss the role of explanation in the social sciences. My name is Monica Krauss. I'm a professor here in the sociology department at the LSE. And I would like to tell you a little bit about the idea behind this event before I introduce the speakers and tell you about the format. Some of you may have heard about the Group for Theoretical Debates in Anthropology, which was originally organized at the University of Manchester, founded by Tim Ingold and later organized by Peter Wade and then Sumia Venkatasan. If you're not familiar with its history, I'd encourage you to look it up online and also look at some of the publications that have come out of this project, I will try to post a link for you here. The group brought scholars together to debate propositions such as and I'll give you just a few examples. 1995 advocacy is a personal commitment for anthropologists, not an institutional imperative for anthropology. 2009, the anthropological fixation with reciprocity leaves no room for love. 2012, the concept of neoliberalism has become an obstacle to anthropological understandings of the 21st century. I would like to note that I find the list itself, both the short examples I've given and the longer list, very interesting and in itself an interesting output or product. It shows that the organizers have identified a set of issues that have a chance of engaging almost every practicing anthropologists, including students of anthropology. And it also serves as a sort of historical document that allows us to think about how the debate has moved on or has not moved on. I have wanted to do something similar from within my own discipline of sociology, and so today we are here to debate the proposition social science is explanation or it is nothing. I hope that this is a proposition that can similarly to some of the propositions debated among the anthropologists engage researchers across a range of research specialisms and theoretical orientations. It's a proposition that also happens to be related to the motto of the LSE which is to understand the causes of things. The topic is also interesting to me because I think it relates this conversation to a conversation I've seen emerging in the past 10-15 years which has brought debates about theory in the social sciences, together with debates about methods in a new way, and which has drawn on observations of how social scientists actually do their work for discussions about how they should do their work together in new ways. To debate this proposition, I'm very excited that I have that four very accomplished sociologists working in a range of traditions have agreed to join me. I will introduce each of them briefly in a moment, but I want to note that each of them is really very generous to have agreed to join this debate. It's a slightly unusual event and generally none of us knows how it will turn out. It's in many ways an extra distraction from the research agendas that our speakers are pursuing which we could and should debate in their own right. Our first speaker speaking in favor of of the proposition that social science is explanation or it is nothing is Professor Melinda Mills. She's a professor of sociology and the director of the Leverhulme Center for Demographic Science at the University of Oxford. She, her research engages a range of uh, behaviors, uh, particularly also health related behaviors and reproductive behaviors. And she is using statistical methods and pays attention also to the effects of genes and gene environment interactions. Speaking against the proposition is Professor Nortje Maris. She is a professor in science, Technology and Society at the Center for Interdisciplinary Methodologies at the University of Warwick. Her research contributes to science and technology studies, to social theory, particularly to theories of the public sphere, and to digital sociology. Speaking for the proposition is Julian Goh, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Chicago. He is a historical sociologist who's studying the logics and effects of empires and imperial histories he also contributes to post-colonial thought and to epistemological and theoretical debates last but not least speaking against is Mike Savage who is the Martin White professor of sociology um, at the LSE and whose work is on inequality and stratification which he brings together with cultural sociology with a consistently also historical perspective um, and who's also contributed to the history of sociology. I want to let you know, you the audience, that I have approached the speakers with a certain brief in mind so I have asked them would they be willing to speak for or against um, they have agreed to this, but of course they might have their own interpretations of the brief or might slightly subvert it, and that is all welcome. I also want to let you know that I did not ask the speakers to coordinate or really enable them to coordinate. So what we're not doing here is teams or points or or anything like that. I'd like to I'd like us all to enjoy these. Uh, contributions as standalone short contributions that are related by topic each speaker will speak for up to 10 minutes and then i look forward to comments and questions you're very welcome if you're in the audience to submit questions or comments via the chat it's always welcome if you'd also like to tell us where you're joining us from uh, what your affiliation is if if that is um Relevant and i'd be very pleased to to pass your comments and questions on to our panel. At this point, I will also find an occasion to invite our speakers to comment, perhaps on each other's statements which again they haven't had a chance to to read or or engage with um, beforehand. With this introduction, I would ask Melinda Mills to start us off. Thank you.
2: Great. Thank you very much, and thank you for the introduction. And and as I said when I responded, I think it's an unusual event, and that's a compliment. So uh, so thank you. So I've been, as uh, Monica said, I've been given the four side. Uh, I didn't choose it, um, but I'm embracing it. And uh, um, I'm also the first slot. So so let's let's see how that works. So I'm also a, a quantitative researcher. So I'm sort of in a I don't know, I'm slightly in a Cruella role at the moment, and I'm happy to take and embrace that role. So the title of the session is Social Science is Explanation, or it's nothing at all. So I was looking at it and I was thinking about it. And I thought, well, what's the antonym of this? Uh, You know, so what's the opposite? What's the opposite of explanation? And what's the opposite of nothing? So nothing is something. So that's quite easy. But you know, if social science is an explanation, then then what is it? So that's the first thing I had to unpack. Is it description? Is it correlation? Is it causation? Is it understanding? So and I thought about that and I thought to myself, okay, so if social science you know, is an explanation, you know, is description not valid? Is correlation not valid? Is being inconclusive, not valid? Um, and uh, do we have to only engage in causal explanations? And I came to the conclusion that, you know, to answer this question, it really depends on the social science question that's being asked. So um, I have a PhD in demography, a background in in sociology, but I also work in in genetics and and different methods and have seen the way of doing science across these, these multiple domains. So the question that's asked sometimes needs explanation and sometimes it doesn't. So I know I'm supposed to argue for but I'll argue for in some cases and against in others. So imagine I'm a you know a demographer by training. If I want to know how many people are childless or migrating or employed or uh live in the UK. I mean, you know, that's a really vital important question and that's descriptive. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um so I think you know these kind of basic descriptive questions, you know, we 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 knew when when the government was trying to figure out how many ethnic minorities were vaccinated, they struggled with the denominator. We know during Brexit, (laughs) you know, during the whole migration conversation, everyone struggled with the denominator of like, oh, how many migrants are there and what groups are there? So the the description and just the understanding is vital, I think. Um, But or or do you want to understand an association or correlation? Now, some people think that that's not that's not very useful. Well, That's a large part of my work as well, too, and that can be very, um, that can relate to discovery work. So in my work on genome-wide association studies, we engage in discoveries, but those are correlations. So we look for a relationship between a genetic variant and the outcome that you're looking at. In my case, it's reproduction, timing of uh, when you have children, number of children, age at first sex. And those are correlations. Um, The the scientists call it hypothesis-free research and most social scientists call it data mining, (laughs) you know? So so it's these these differences. And those are looking at associations on very um, relevant social science topics. There's been studies on educational attainment, income, occupation, and those are correlations. And those are, you know, discoveries. And you can then look downstream and see how do these genes work. Uh, you know, then they do these biological functional studies. How does it work? How do they express themselves? When do they not express themselves? So, but this is really valid work as well too. So we've got description, we've got correlation, and then you've got causality. And I think, you know, that is also uh, extremely important, but it's not important in every question. But why would it be important? So. Often you need to, to establish causality or an effect. And I'm thinking of the work, I just uh, uh was at a Royal Society Committee um, a, a meeting today of the science councils, and we talked about giving science advice. And as being um, one of the few social scientists on the SAGE, this emergency committee giving advice during the pandemic, we often got really causal questions, you know, things like is um you know, would the COVID certificates work if we introduce them, these kind of questions. And, you know, how can we establish that when we introduce them, this will happen? So you really had to, to develop a, a causal approach. So we developed a sort of counterfactual model and we did synthetic control modeling and we compared six countries that introduced them with 19 matched control countries. And we could show that yes, they'll they'll impact vaccine uptake. So you can do these kind of questions in very relevant ways. Um, and I think, you know, the, the other question is when you, when you're thinking about this in the broad sense, it kind of, it, it comes back to, um, you know, what is truth and how do you even define what, what knowledge and science is. And I, you know, I think that this has come up so often over the last years and it's, I'm sure our historical speakers will say, oh, no, this has always been there over time. And I, I'm sure it has, but. I think I really, for the last few years being an advisor and working on um, COVID, I became surprised at what people thought was explanation or what they thought was science. Um, So particularly there was a fetish uh, with randomized control trials and meta-analyses that these were science. So you can remember uh, things such as uh, face coverings, the debate in the UK and and in some other countries, they said, I don't know, the evidence is inconclusive. but uh, you know, and that was because there were no uh, randomized control trials, um, and there were surveys or self reports. So that 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 was seen as um, um, uh, not it is the absence of evidence. So I think that's a real issue. And there was a caricature in many cases of social science and humanities research saying that self-reported surveys, observations, qualitative studies, ethnographic work was just invalid or weak. And that's just not true. So I think it's these kind of uh, aspects that we have to, to stand back and look at what's true or not. Because most of the things that happened during COVID were not pharmaceutical. There were interventions that were very behavioral. So I guess I come back to, to just sort of conclude over, you know what is the question? And I think that's the thing that I would like to turn to as well too, I'm just looking at my timer. Um, so you know what's the question? And I think the question is just going to be key to whether explanation is really important and what kind of information you get out. So just uh, thinking of the COVID question again, it was fresh in my mind. Of uh, talking about it today, the the what most governments asked and the UK did as well is they thought, okay, well, if we do these interventions and these policies, how do they affect one the transmission of the virus and two the consequences for the healthcare system? Very biomedical-related questions and uh, system-related questions. But by asking that specific question, you excluded economic uh, questions, social questions. You didn't ask what's the the, the disproportionate impact on different groups, questions about intersectionality, about how we're going to exacerbate inequalities, um, focusing on work from home, only half of the people can closing schools, learning loss. You know, you, you've all heard it many times. So, by narrowing questions right at the beginning, I think we can uh, we limit ourselves. So I think that the question is really important to define, and that's why I focused on you know explanation or nothing. So in my world, uh, nothing doesn't exist. <laughs> I think there's always something. There's always a value of different kinds of research. And um, I find it um, in sociology, it can be unhelpful and and polarizing. I know that you set this as a debate to pin us against each other, but I can find this sort of quantitative qualitative uh, debate, this sort of, um, you know, it's, it's very polarizing and it puts people into camps, you know, the lone wolf or the team science or the description versus explanation. And I think we're all sort of something in between so um, I would just like to have the plea you know, to, to just say that it just really depends on the question and that all of, from, from rich, deep ethnographic work to correlational work, uh, doing machine learning, to all of these things, we put everything together and then we understand things and that's why we're here. So thank you very much, uh, Monica, I turn it back to you.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Melinda, I move right on to Nortia Mares.
3: Yeah, thank you for the invitation and um, the invitation to take up the position against uh, today's proposition, uh, which I'm very glad to do in in the spirit uh, of debate that, uh, that Melinda also invoked. In some ways, I think my task is indeed the easier one. Because for many decades, for for more than a century, social scientists have developed pretty compelling arguments to highlight what is the problem and what are the limitations of explanation as a way of understanding society. Now, many of these uh, sociological arguments foreground reflexivity, the uh, insight that the relation between society, And knowledge about society is a particularly complex one. And this partly because social life is explicitly performed with an orientation towards the accounts that may be provided about social life. Now, because of this reflexive relation between ideas about social life and social life, um, we, we need to work through the implications of this for social science. And I think the best uh, sort of proposal on that point is that the relation between social science and society is best understood as an interactive relation. Um, And I think this this rightly causes some, some problems for explanation. Now take the use of surveys to investigate, for instance, the social acceptance of technology. Or think of large social media data sets that are made available to social scientists in order for them to study disinformation. Now, when we think about these um, arrangements for knowing society, I think it's very important to realize that the, that they not only make possible the representation of social phenomena, say the factors that make uh, sustainable transitions impossible because of the lack of uptake of technology. These kind of arrangements for knowing society equally enable interventions in society. And this often is the case in in a non-straightforward way. So think of this online survey, survey used to measure the societal acceptance of technology These surveys can also be used to promote particular framings um, of what are sometimes called problem-solution couplings, such as the idea that the transition to sustainability depends all, that it all depends on technology. The same applies to the use of social media data in computational sociology. This not only raises questions about the kinds of representations of society and kinds of explanations of social phenomena that are enabled by such data. It's also um, a question around the way in which the societal relevance of of of, of social media platforms are established through this research or how particular forms of interactions like liking become validated when they become the object um, uh, and, 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 and the method of, of, of social science research. My problem with explanation uh, on this point is that it's not very well equipped, methodologically speaking, to recognize or engage with these type of reflexivity or interactive uh, um, effects uh, in the relation between social science and society. So explanation tends to be predicated on the assumption that representation is first order. It requires that concepts, first and foremost, refer back to reality. For explanation to work, we usually need to assume that interactivity or reflexivity doesn't really make a difference to how social reality plays out. And so... I think my, the problem that I have with explanation that I want to foreground here is that it risks to exclude large chunks of social reality and of the relation between social science and social reality uh, from consideration. Um, a second, set of, second uh, point that I want to make and emphasize really has to do with the or nothing part uh, in the proposition that Melinda also focused on. The or nothing bit in the proposition makes me rather wary. Um, It makes me wary that to commit to explanation is somehow to accept, uh, and Melinda touched on this, the marginalization uh, of other ways of knowing society. I think it would be bad for social science. And I think we probably all agree on that, but perhaps paradoxically, I also think that in the long run, it would be quite bad for explanation that it would weaken the explanatory power of the social sciences if we would weaken other modes of knowing society. And I'm thinking particular for me, the the sort of the other of explanation here is articulation. So there is this slogan that I, often think of, which is that our concepts go downhill all of the time. Because society is constantly changing, our vocabularies, our concepts are continuously rendered deficient, inadequate to social reality. To just give one example, the the notion of the state, the rise of the security state in its particular version in the post-war period, rendered a lot of conceptions of the state and of power uh, deficient. And a lot of work of articulation has been performed by sociologists and social sciences to rework its concepts, but also its methods for studying the state in order to make this phenomenon even nameable, observable, but also to to grasp its significance for society, the rise of the security state. Now, I think of this as the work of of articulation rather than explanation. So the developing of sensibilities, the crafting of concepts, and also of measures to render societal phenomena nameable and observable. And I think that this work of articulation is crucial for its own right, but also that explanation depends on it. So to practice explanation in the social sciences means often in practice to rely on an existing apparatus of established categories, measures, and data. In relying on such an apparatus, we take for granted, even just practically speaking, a lot of work of articulation that has already been done. And indeed, often we rely on struggles to make phenomena count, um, struggles for the existence of particular categories. And I think my concern with explanation or, or nothing is that it can tempt us to take this kind of work of articulation for granted. To again mention one example, the category of invisible labor that scholars in feminist technology studies developed to account for innovation and innovation as a social process. It's only when that notion and sensibility for mundane, invisible types of labor was developed that it could be made to count and um, operationalized in the explanation of, say, the role of innovation in society. My concern then is that this work of articulation cannot be economized upon. um, If in the social sciences, we want to remain attuned to our object of inquiry, society. And this brings me to a very last point. And this aligns, uh, I think, very closely with um, Melinda's uh, contribution in that my problem isn't really with explanation itself. There are many forms of explanation um, that um, simply delight me and excite me. Um, I'm thinking of the work of Norbert Elias, who has developed a very processual methodology Uh, of explaining uh, social processes a form a way of explaining social processes which really focuses on internal dynamics uh, within social figurations now such types of explanations do not have uh, many of the weaknesses that i uh, invoked earlier on Um, such a mode of explanation can even work with interactivity and make the interaction between social ideas about society and society a core part of what we investigate. So just to, vary, to, to sum up as very lastly, um, my points then, my concern is with the effects of a strong emphasis on explanation on social science more broadly, that it risks to, to create blind spots for reflexivity that it risks to indulge us in the perpetuation of uh, outdated categories, but but most importantly, uh, that it it might put at risk some of the work of articulation that we do as sociologists by suggesting that it somehow can be um, economized upon.
1: Thank you very much. Um, our next speaker is Julian, who is has been asked to speak in favor of explanation.
0: Thank you, Monica. can you hear me? Thumbs up, please? Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks for the invitation, Monica, um to join this wonderful uh, and interesting panel. I'm really happy to have this conversation and honored to have this conversation with the fellow panelists whose work I admire so much. Um, and I'm happy to take the role of being pro-explanation. Um, And I will take that role quite hard today, Um, even though I elsewhere argued for description following in the wake of my fellow panelists, Mike Savage's work, but in the spirit of the event, I will go all in for explanation. Um, And as a historical sociologist, I hope you'll let me begin by referring to something that happened in 1897. Uh, This was the year that the Philadelphia Negro by W.E.B. Du Bois was first published. This was a deep examination of Philadelphia's swelling African-American community. It was lauded as the originator of empirical sociology in the United States. Um, It was Du Bois's first major scholarly achievement. It helped establish his career. It earned him the admiration um, of even Max Weber over in Germany. Um, But more than a founding influential work of early sociology, The Philadelphia Negro also did something equally, if not more important, by the same token. That is, it exposed and dispelled lies. These were lies about causes, about why things are the way they are. The lies were being perpetuated all around Du Bois by the white press, the white public, and even white sociologists. They were lies of scientific racism. They claimed that African-Americans were mired in poverty, illness, and deprivation because of their biological character, because they were racially inferior their biology, blood, or stock, making them unable to be anything else but lazy, ignorant, incapable of intelligent labor, and sometimes criminal. These were lies, in short, asserting that Black Americans were at the bottom of America's post-bellum social hierarchy because of natural hierarchy. And what Du Bois did is help upend such lies through his careful, meticulous, empirical investigations into Philadelphia's Black community. He exposed the barriers of discrimination and class that Black Philadelphians faced. He showed how the history of American racism best explains their lowly status. In other words, what Du Bois did was mobilize sociological research and theory to show that the cause of Black Americans' inferior position in society was not biological, but social and historical, thereby offering one of the first empirically-backed sociological causal explanations of racial hierarchy. And in this way, Du Bois dispelled lies and spoke truth to power. And I think that this is what sociology is uniquely positioned to do and must do at all costs. That is, it must provide causal explanations of social outcomes and events and processes so that we can dispel lies and speak truth to power. Now this claim I'm making requires taking some steps. So please take them with me. Step one, recognize that people give causal explanations all the time. It's how people in the world operate. In Du Bois's time, most people explained African-American poverty by reference to racial inferiority. Even if they didn't articulate it exactly that way or in such a scientific way as scientific racism, that's how many people made sense of the racialized, unequal distribution of resources. That's how many people make sense of it today. Um, and people make sense of the world around them with all kinds of implicit or explicit explanations. They might see a poor person or poverty and think something like, Well, people are poor and there's inequality because some people just don't work hard enough. Or they look at poor nations and assume that the poverty is due to government corruption or the lack of natural resources or just plain inability to innovate. Or people look at crime statistics and assume that if we just put more money into police departments, crime will go down. Here, there is an implicit assumption about a causal process. That is, more policing causes less crime and less policing causes more crime. So, you see my point. People make implicit or explicit causal claims all the time. Hence, step two people make implicit or explicit causal claims all the time, and it informs their actions, their beliefs, and ultimately the distribution of resources in society. If I believe that the poverty of racialized minorities is due to their inferior biology, I will be less likely to support government programs that try to educate and lift up racialized minorities. Because if it's biologically determined, no amount of social help will do any good. Or if I believe that a country is poor because of government corruption, I'll be less likely to support financial aid to that country and more likely to support free market solutions. If I believe that crime can be reduced by more policing, I'll be more likely to support more tax money going into policing rather than say, into social programs for wayward teens and so on and so on and so on. So causal claims are not just floating around in people's heads, they have real consequences. Now, step three, I only have two more. Step three, recognize that people's assumptions about causality can be wrong. It is not necessarily the case that the reason why some people are poor is because they don't work hard enough. Maybe it's because they don't have enough opportunities. It is not necessarily the case that more police reduces crime. It's not necessarily the case that the only reason why poor countries are poor is because of corruption, and so on, and so on, and so on. And furthermore, it's not only that the causal claims people operate by can be wrong. It's also that they are often straight out lies. Lies told by powerful institutions so that people will do what those powerful institutions want them to do, both the way they want them to, support the policies or politicians they want them to, and so on. And so my fourth and final step, and to the point of this debate, social science and particularly sociology can help expose these lies by doing research that better explains social outcomes and events. And I wanna say better, Not because I think sociologists are smarter than everyone else and everyone else are dumber, but better only because sociologists have the resources to systematically, carefully, thoughtfully collect and analyze data, to systematically observe and analyze the world, and thus are more likely to produce valid explanations, just as, for instance, Du Bois did when he did the research for his book, uh, The Philadelphia Negro. See, I just gave a better explanation for why sociologists can give better explanations than most other people who don't have the privilege of time and resources and training to do studies that can offer verifiable causal explanations. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying, and I think this is important, and this may be what we're debating about, I'm not saying that social scientists always provide good explanations. Sometimes they fall short. For instance, much large-scale quantitative work that seeks associations between variables to find covering laws rather than tracing causes and causal mechanisms or causal processes, probably don't qualify as good explanations in my view because they don't specify causes. This goes back to Professor Mill's point that correlations are probably more like description rather than um, explanation. Unless you assume that I'm only picking on quantitative scholarship, let me give you another example from my own more qualitative oriented area of work, post-colonial sociology. One of the implicit if not stated claims of post-colonial sociology is that imperialism had and continues to have an important impact upon colonized societies and upon metropolitan societies. It's a kind of cause that can be turned to for explanations. For instance, one common claim is that colonialism has detrimentally impacted the economic, uh, economic, political and social conditions of ex-colonies while conversely enabling the economic growth and wealth of metropolitan societies like Britain. According to some, therefore, the goal of post-colonial sociology should be to trace these colonial connections to produce what is sometimes called connected histories or connected sociology. The problem is that post-colonial sociologies too often leave these causal claims as assumption. They assume, for instance, that just because there is a connection of colonialism, that that connection is automatically a cause. And this leaves the post-colonial project open to critique. The great sociologist Michael Mann, for instance, argues against any notion that England's economic growth was dependent upon overseas imperialism by pointing out that only 5 to 10% of England's economy was connected to overseas colonialism. The post-colonial assumption that connections made a difference for England's development is thus upended, and in a sense, the entire post-colonial project that rests upon the assumption that connections equal cause is overthrown. Now we can and I would dispute man's reasoning here about England's development but that's not the point. The point is this, if we assume that connections are a cause, rather than thoroughly and systematically investigating causes and causal processes, our analyses will be weak. We need to do more than just recognize and describe connections, which is unfortunately where some post-colonial sociologists end their task. We have to explain. It is one thing to say that we need to go beyond methodological nationalism and recognize that England has been connected to India or Jamaica through colonialism or whatever, it's quite another to show that those connections and relations caused English economic growth or had a, a real impact on things going on in England. And for the latter, we need to do the careful work of collecting empirical data and enlisting methods of causal inference, such as ruling out alternative hypotheses, process trace tracing or comparative pattern matching, among many other qualitative methods to create causal narratives that explain why and how such connections matter. And so I'll conclude this task of explanation, I would argue is one of the most important tasks of sociology, it may even be the task of sociology for if we're not explaining, then it becomes much more difficult to expose and dispel lies and so harder for us to speak truth to power. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Julian. Mike, over to you for a, again, a more skeptical <laughs> intervention, I expect. Okay. Well, or thank skeptical you. in a different way.
4: Thank you. Uh, and thanks to the panel. And it's, it's uh, really, I think it's a great format for us to actually, you know, because rather than compromising, as we usually do, when we have to, having to have this argument, I thought I would just, and like everybody else on this panel, you know, I, you know, you, I could argue it both ways, actually. Um, and I want to talk through some of my, some of my reflections, because I, re, I was originally trained as a historian. You know, I can't, I, I, my undergraduate and my master's in history, and I kind of assumed that my, my first interest and my passion was history. And my reason for being interested in social science and becoming a sociologist was fundamentally that I thought the social sciences were theoretical. That is to say that they did causality. Uh, what I found in a lot of history, exciting though it, though it was, was lots and lots of data, lots of facts, lots of, you know, um, long elaborated monographs. But really, what is the stuff of what's causing what is going on? So for me, um, thinking about causality was actually how I became a sociologist, I would say. And I have to also to say that uh, way I'm going to turn to the negative in a minute. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not changing sides. <laughs> I'm just saying. Whenever I read the methodology of social science, I think, well, yes, all the, all the arguments in favour of causality, I was very influenced by critical realism. You know, this work from Andrew Sayer and Bashkar and Haray in the 80s, particularly arguing for the need to look at underlying mechanisms, you know, rather than superficial regularities. So that's all very powerful. And uh, I, I, I think we need to recognise there is definitely a role for that kind of social science. However, um switching now to my brief with eight minutes to go um that that belief got disrupted by two i would say by two two major things two major ideas one of them was the provocation by Andrew Abbott um in the 1990s particularly and he wrote this for me very very powerful article about a critique of general uh, of models of general linear reality and what he was doing was taking issue with kind of positivistic notions of causality through you know, basically regression models, where you have a dependent variable and you you bug in all these independent variables and you find out which one is the most powerful and you say, aha, found the cause here. Um, and what he said, what his provocation is, is to say actually the methods which are doing the work in the sciences are, very, are actually not doing this, they are very descriptive. And he was thinking about things like gene sequencing, um which were highly descriptive scans scanning people's dna Um, and this these were the methods which were revolutionizing the biosciences at the time and his provocation is to say actually if we want our work to get out there and people to use it um outside a particular um you know canonical tradition in social science that we need to make our ways of doing sociology this, more descriptive, and he, he obviously champions sequence analysis. You might make the same arguments about social network analysis, cluster analysis, and so on and so forth. Powerful arguments in terms of how do we actually communicate to wider audiences and get people to listen to us. Uh, you know, speaking in the UK, um, this is a challenge we face with our current government, um, and not just the UK, though. Then that, that, that led into a second uh, sort of thinking, thinking about uh, inspired by Bourdieu, okay. because Bourdieu asked this question: How do certain forms of knowledge, expertise, become axes of cultural capital, axes of distinction? How is it that certain kinds of um, expertise become exclusive, become axes of closure? And that forces us as academics to really think reflect upon our own practice. And here, I think we probably could all think about examples of how, you know, this could be getting a, a, getting our article back from a journal with reviewer two saying famously, this is a bit descriptive. Uh, And here, you know, what is held up is, this is a proper causal model, great stuff. You're in, you know, you're in this top journal. It's a bit descriptive actually, you know, do it again. And I think we can all think of examples of how this descriptive versus explanatory divide is used as a device, to secure kind of the, the kudos and the distinction, the, uh, the, the highlights of cultural capital within, the, within academia. And I think it's a really important point for us because I think we do need to rec- recognize how is our work being communicated and how are we going to try and um influence the 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 world we live in given given the innumerable crises we face whether it's climate change or structural racism or um inequality which I'm going to talk about in a minute so that's the kind of provocation and i think it's an open question i mean in theory and i i, I agree with merinda and and certainly with Julian, you know that um explanatory work is really powerful but what 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 if we think about the examples of work in the social sciences, which is actually really having a purchase, what are the models we would point to? And I here I am very taken by the work of some of the economists around Piketty. Um, so many of you will know this 1000 page mammoth book, Capital of the 21st Century, where he, he goes into taxation data and unravels the um, income distribution and to some extent, the wealth distribution across several nations shows uh, the trend over the last Few decades for the very wealthy to take a higher uh, share of national income. Extremely descriptive work. It, it's, it is. Some people find it mind-numbingly boringly descriptive. I find it quite interesting, but some people find it boringly descriptive. And then, he, does he have a theory of it? Does he, does he explain it? Not obviously. He does. Um, you know, he's got a kind of theory of R is greater than G, which the economists hate. Uh, that don't think it stacks up in terms of neoclassical economic theory. And then he sort of a bit towards Marxism, but not really very far. And then he doesn't, he doesn't really have a theory of capitalism. So one, one argument, if you're gonna take this explanatory perspective, is to say this 1,000 page book, unravelling inequality trends um, is a failure. If you're gonna be looking at it in terms of, it hasn't got a theory of what's going on. On the other hand, it has sold a million and a half copies, uh, the work of that sort of tradition has inspired Occupy Wall Street, social movements. Um, a few years ago I was in Canada doing a focus group on uh, talking to, to Canadians about how they saw social class. And some people were talking about the one percentage as a social class. How fascinating this metric, this descriptive metric, is being used by people to think about inequality. Um, can we say an explanatory model has gone out there and done the same thing? Perhaps, but I'm not sure it has. So, just to say, oh, we should put Piketty in the bin because the theory doesn't stack up. What's a big loss, it seems to me, in terms of how social science can be influencing the world. Another example, which I think um, links to some of the things said already, is the spirit level, which many of you will know. Uh, Wilkinson and Pickett, this book, 2010, where they look at the correlations between you know well being and inequality in 22 rich countries, and they famously discover that um more unequal countries score worse around a basket of well-being measures health you know lifestyles um political um well-being and such like now all sorts of problems in this book too um correlation is not causation uh, as i think we all recognize and belinda talked about this um correlation with 22 cases really problematic isn't it i mean we wouldn't really take that as a serious demonstration of very, of very much. Um, so again, the, and then they have a theory, which they talk about later on in their new book on the inner, the, um, the inner spirit, I think it's called, which is about psychology and about how, um, you know, the reason why inequality causes everyone to suffer is because senses of marginalization proliferate in uh, unequal societies. Well, perhaps that's, perhaps that's interesting. I mean, certainly there's an interesting hypotheses. I don't think they demonstrated that from the data, and I'm not sure that the more recent book has really demonstrated it. So again, if we're to just say, how does that book stack up as an explanatory work of social science? Not very well, I don't think. But how does it stack, out, stack, up, stack up as a work which has been very inspiring to many people and made us think about inequality in really powerful ways? It's been very important. Uh, so the descriptive work and the very simple use of graphs and all, and all that is very powerful. So that's why publication. I mean, I, I I wouldn't want to ask argue against explanation in theory so this week. Explanation in theory, I think, is a fantastic goal to have. But if we have if we ask ourselves the question, how do we communicate to wide audiences and get people to listen to us and make our work have traction? My contention is, it's it is the more descriptive vein of work which is doing that in contemporary times, and we would be. Um, it would we would be losing a lot of ground if we said that doesn't really that's not really big work actually we shouldn't be doing that or it's not it's only of minor significance thank you
1: thank you very much mike thank you very much everyone i we have some questions from the audience and i will relate these to you uh in a minute i'll also i think add a question of my own um and then i'll have one or two rounds where I just ask you to, um, to comment in, in whichever way you you, you think fit um, in response to questions, in response perhaps also uh, to each other. Um, Mohamed Murshid says, Does sociology is explanation or nothing mean that interpretation is a part of explanation? or is it totally excluded from this option? Um, Obviously a a classic issue in terms of the the role of interpretation within or against explanation. And Donna Carmichael from the LSE sociology department points, uh, refers to the work of Michelle Jackson and points to the mismatch between the evidence we have and about uh, the effects of inequality um, and the, the effort, I guess, we, we put into studying inequality and, and showing how it explains lots of bad things and the lack of policy action. What does that do for how we think of our own um, scholarly intervention? I wanted to add a question that follows up perhaps most clearly on Julian's. I've also been thinking about the important role we have in confronting false explanation. I, for example, regularly teach on genocide. And when I think about, okay, what have we learned from decades of research on this? I'm clearest in the evidence we have about, what are false, simplistic, problematic, and so on, explanations, and I think that that is important work to do and and to communicate. It doesn't seem to me quite the same as producing a good explanation. Um, So, is there a space sometimes perhaps for being more modest and saying, yes, part of what we do is, is Name it as you have done, name dispelling false explanation without making the stronger and sometimes perhaps less realistic claim of providing explanations. These seem to be uh, slightly two different things. Um, Would any of you come back in with comments or answers?
0: I mean, Monica, since you referred to my remarks specifically, maybe I'll just um, make a comment about that in the spirit of um, conversation that you've initiated. Um, I think that there is something to dispelling false explanations without providing an alternative explanation. But I also think that one of the best ways to dispel false explanation is by providing an alternative explanation as well. So I, I think that in an ideal world, we would, prov- we would dispel false explanations uh, and provide an alternative explanation. But I definitely think dispelling false explanations can be useful in and of themselves um, if it helps us lead to or posit alternative explanations. Because for me, the, the end goal would be uh, always explanation. Thank you. Oh, can I add to that, Monica? Yeah.
1: Yes.
2: So- I think that that dispelling these kind of things that aren't true, it's, it's very frustrating. You always wonder, should I give this oxygen, you know, this argument, or should I just let it die? You know, uh, Because um, uh, particularly um, during COVID, but also in relation to discrimination and racism and inequality, I think we can think of multiple examples and Julian gave quite a few where there were just, there's just links and associations that just simply aren't true. And I think where I feel that we do need to go into debate and we do need to counter it is um, in terms of when there's going to be some sort of public harm, and I think then we we have to come in. And I think that that was several people's call to action as well too. But what I do worry about is when scientists. So we have this nice debate here, which is which is I think we're we're actually. Um, This is what sociology is, is is debating different sides of things, and and it's quite a a diverse uh, field, so that's represented here as well. But what, I think we have to think about how the public sees us as well, too. So they might see even the question of this conversation and the topic is quite insular, and, 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 you know, we're talking amongst ourselves but also the fact that scientists, and that's not just sociologists, it was during COVID, it was, it's now during the energy crisis, it's during politi- uh, uh, politics, we often disagree with each other. And that can be very confusing. And people can use that information to think that we're uncertain, we don't know the answer, that there's doubt. You know, and I'm thinking of Naomi Oreskes and Stephen Conway's book, The Merchants of Doubt you know, just these, uh, uh, how they dispelled climate change, how, you know, the, the evidence wasn't conclusive and the tobacco evidence wasn't conclusive. So I think we have to be really careful. So there is a moment where we have to, to say, yes, the science is changing, um, you know, it is uncertain and that this debate is what happens in science. And I think that's often misunderstood. Thank you.
1: Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question like why do people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. A question from Malte Grunemann from the University of Mannheim for Melinda Mills and Mike Savage. You argued against the statement by highlighting the value of descriptive work. Do we need concepts and working theories to know what to consider of describing and how to interpret our results?
4: Sure, shall I, I come in on that? Um, yes, you do, obviously. I mean, none of us are empiricists. So we just, the reality does not disclose itself to us in some sort of passive way. We just sit there and collect data and facts. The facts are always constructed. I mean, I mentioned Piketty and the work of The economists, but they have a particular conception of percentile distributions and things and how, how you structure and collect that. So I think um, there is no pure description as such, but it's kind of how you how you can use Descriptive strategies, I think, to um, lay out a scenario, lay out situations, and use the, those descriptions to then reflect on how might we explain these things. So I think it's an iterative process. So I think I'm probably in agreement with everyone on the panel. Really, it's kind of how you, how you can construct the most effective way of developing a strategy, and actually, this links back to the first question you asked, Monica, about um, is there a role for interpretation, which I think there is. That's good. so. I think, if you go back to the methodology of social scientists 50 years ago, it's very common to, to compare interpretive strategies and the argument was interp- in, interpretation was something which was about um, making individual, you know, unique observations about how things could be interpreted in a particular discrete historical situation. But generalising causality. And The notion was causality had to be generalising and you needed to use things like covering laws to explain every case. And clearly that was a very extreme opposition between interpretation and causality which depended upon a particular setting you know, setting apart of humanities versus the natural sciences we're in a kind of post-positivistic world now i mean no and this is true for stem subjects as much as for the social sciences none of us really hold up hold on to that uh, positivistic conception of causality using covering law models and things and therefore it follows that that process of interpretation is indeed think, ways of thinking through how these facts can be assembled and how we can come to an overall conclusion about things so um so yeah look i, I think i i think um i would say that uh, we do need to have an iteration between the two different aspects this is we're sort of we're sort of not doing what we should be doing which is arguing against each other but i think we just, just say okay. these things do link together thank you
1: I have a very interesting uh, question from Yintan Fan from the University of Essex about prediction. Um, The the question is, can social science also be a prediction in your opinion beyond just explanation? How could it happen if the answer is yes? I think it's really interesting uh, to think about the relationship between explanation and prediction. In this question, it's about prediction beyond explanation which I absolutely see. But I also wondered, thinking back to Melinda's example um, about the effects of certification, whether that was actually a prediction without an explanation. So um, an invitation for us to think about the seemingly quite complex relationship between prediction and explanation. And if I may add a, a separate point about generalization, I have, become increasingly concerned that I don't really know what we mean by generalization, that the term features in conversations in ways where I think perhaps collectively we don't quite know what we mean by generalization. I think for those who still wish to speak in the um, camp for the proposition, it's one version of the question, is explanation always Is it generalization? Is that important to, to explanation um, for everyone who, which is everyone, is also interested in other aspects of good social science work. Can we do generalization without explanation? Is there something valuable about generalization that isn't tied to explanation and to the particular type of explanation that Mike you refer to via Abbott also that that is linear and, and and causal in a specific way.
2: I can react if you want, Monica, but I thought I thought Norta. did you hand you have your hand up earlier or do you want me would you like to go first?
3: Um, yeah, I had my hand up in relation to different points, but I I can I can briefly step in here and maybe um, make some connections. So about prediction, I mean, I think it's really important to bring it up, because I do think we live in a time where um, the argument is gaining a lot of traction, that uh, we, we've moved into an age of predictive science, um, that what we need, so that we need an anticipatory social science today, more than anything, um, to equip society to deal with all the overwhelming crises facing it. And I mean, I, I, I think on points like that, that it is very important for social scientists to be, to risk being difficult. So, and, and that also means risking uh, to be misunderstood, in that when, when you look at the type of uh, scientific programs, that favor these kind of predictive, this predictive science. These are often sciences that are very much involved in the sort of material transformation of society, of the creation of infrastructures in smart cities, um, uh, in health, that are very much designed to make people do certain things, to encourage certain behaviors. And so when we say, oh, do we now live in an age of predictive science, where science will predict what will happen? I think it's very important for social scientists to, say, to push back and say, look, these sciences that are predicting our behaviors uh, or predicting um, how society will, will, will adapt are also sciences very invested in creating infrastructures to influence behavior, for make things happen in, in society. They are interactive sciences. And so, yes, to 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 not just go along with the sort of theory of knowledge that is packaged into a proposition, I think, can at times be really our job as social scientists. Mm-hmm.
2: I guess I would just add to that. Yeah. So just directly about prediction and simulations. Absolutely. I think that's very important. And we do it often in our in our work that we have simulations, you know, based on this social network interaction and if you had more or this or that, you know, and I think that's really important that we think beyond what we have and we try to construct. And that can be formal theory, that can be formalized in sort of agent-based modeling or network models or simulations or predictions. So I think that's something that we can do. Um, But then you run into the problem that if you're dealing with policymakers or other people, they usually want a number like for the prediction and they're hanging on a number and then you've got you've got to explain confidence intervals and uncertainty and it's under this assumption, A, B, C and D. So I think you also have to be careful with your predictions. And then just with uh, Malta Grunemann, the, the question from M- Mannheim as well too, I think it was a really key question as well. Yes, obviously we need concepts and theories um, to guide us and we need to have a guiding question. And I think Mike would be horrified. I, re, I was on a committee, I won't say which one, but they did machine learning to try to understand inequality in the UK. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then just imagine throwing all the data together and they come up with things like, oh, we think it might be related to smoking and the industry. And you're just thinking, you know, you could have done a literature review. Um, but yeah, so I, I do think you need a question. You can't just throw. The kitchen sink into it I think you need some guidance otherwise you'll come up with with either nonsense or just things that everybody knew already.
4: Thank you I mean yes um, and there's that study isn't there by Shetty and you know if, if, if all the people in poor areas of the US or on Facebook with rich people then suddenly they become up really mobile so you get all these weird, weird things when you get all this you know granular data being used without a kind of a, a serious um, set of theoretical arguments just on this question of predictability, or, predi- or prediction. Um, I do think socialists need to be need to talk about the future, and actually, we're not very good at doing that because we tend to think about what well, you know, diagnose our current crises and our current situation, and then kind of possibly how we got where we got to. Um, look, at, I mean, it, but it seems to me, and I'm not an expert in climate change issues, but we 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 rely, don't we, upon all these scenarios? You know, in 20 years' time, unless we cut our carbon emissions, we're going to be really screwed. And if we improve it a bit, we'd be better off. Without those sort of predictions, we'd be in trouble. I mean, we're in trouble now, but we'd be, we'd be in worse trouble because we wouldn't really know how to be thinking about how to change our actions. I think kind of sociological, um, there wouldn't be predictions like a cast iron law because I don't think they exist, but sort of if things go on the way they are, this is what we think we may end up is, is is really what we should be doing more of perhaps. Um, say, with social mobility or the way higher education is being restructured. And we probably should be bolder about, Thinking about how we derive these these sets of um, views about how the, the future trajectory of the world, and, and try and win more public attention from that. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Julian.
4: Yeah, if I could just say a, a few
0: things in response to the conversation, to some of the questions in the in the chat. Um, so first of all, um, the very interesting question of prediction. Uh, there may be something more complicated here that I don't understand, but it seems to me that prediction is always easier if you're going by description than by um, causal explanation. Um, because, it, for example, I can think of you know historical descriptions, which are essentially about trends, then you can easily forecast trends. My Excel sheet can do it. Um, and that's a prediction, right? Um, whether they're valid or not is a different thing, but I think it's easy to make predictions. The reason why I say it's harder to make predictions when when it comes to when you're working from causal explanations is because at least my notion of causation, and we can have different ones, but my notion of causation is very complex. It does relate to critical realism, uh, which Mike Savage referred to, um, which also believes in conjunctural causation. And so I, I think that there and and conjunctural causation is hard to um, create. It's cr- hard then to create a model to predict the future. Um the a couple other points that came up, I think are really interesting to talk about. Um one, I, I do think this question of interpretation is important. Um, and depending on how you interpret what interpretation means, I take it to mean, um you know, the Weberian Veed, we have to understand the actor's own interpretations of the world. I think that's crucial for causal explanations. And here I want to connect this to a point made by um, Professor Morris earlier about how explanation does not take into account the interactions between society and social science. If I understand that really interesting point correctly, then I guess I would wonder if, again, I might be misinterpreting this, but I think that there's something to disagree there because um, when I think about, say, studies of performativity and economic sociology, um, you know, the, the the wonderful piece by McKenzie and Milo about the Black-Scholes model for options trading, right? What they show is that um, when traders on the Chicago trade trading floor believed that the Black-Scholes model was correct, then they all um, had this belief and, and we have to interpret that belief. And that actually caused the predictions of the Black-Scholes model to be true, right? So I think that's a perfect example. And that's uh, of, of the kind of interactions between society and social science that explanations can take into account. Essentially, McKin- McKinsey and Milo explained the fact that there was this economic trend by the belief system of the traders um, uh, who were working from an economic model. Um, finally, um, this thing about, you know, I I think, you know, Mike, I think your point about, um, Andy's critique in the nineties, um, is really important. And, and, you know, of course, Andy was my mentor and he's my wonderful colleague now, but I'm going to say that Andy was just wrong. You know, I want to be, he was wrong, not wrong in his critique of linear reality, but wrong in the assumption that only description speaks to wider audiences, right? I think if he had Du Bois in mind. It would, it would be a completely different story, right? Du Bois was not just description. He was trying to get at causal explanations and Du Bois' work was widely popular. Um, I also think that um, there can be lots of dangerous popular books that are descriptive. And this might be a United States specific thing. So this is very interesting to think about, um, because maybe in the United States, there's many more lies that people believe than in England. But I'll take an example of the 1990s, um, a very popular book called The Bell Curve by Murray and Hernstein, which showed correlations between IQ test scores and race um, and and found a correlation and then assumed that biological differences explain these low IQ test scores. Widely popular book reached a huge audience, it was descriptive, and it kind of just left the explanation out there for people to assume that it's due to racial status, right? Which is exactly the kind of thing that social scientists would want to disprove and and try to disprove. And that was all about correlations and it was widely popular um, and so, I agree that we 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 shouldn't discount work that's only explanatory. I completely agree with you. I think journals should not discount what they should not use the explanation versus description thing as a gatekeeping model. But I do think that um, that, that that there can be dangerous descriptions. And, and and going back to public issues, and and if we don't. Um, fight back against those by providing explanations by providing causal explanations to show that look IQ stores actually don't measure anything except. Uh, how well you can take tests and the racial status is not what's explaining the, the, the low IQ stores it's it's discrimination and, and all these other things that sociologists point to unless we do that, then I think description can be very dangerous, even if it's popular.
1: Because Julian you started on the prediction I wanted to just um, follow up isn't there a role that's parallel to what you say about countering false explanation in terms of countering false prediction. That seems to me, if we're looking sort of, part of also what we're doing collectively is, is look for the multiple good things that we do uh, as social sciences as part of explanation and, and beyond and related. And so is isn't countering false prediction. Is that another one?
0: yeah no that would be fine um I, you know I, I I don't think that explanatory work uh, precludes uh, prediction. I just think it's harder. <laughs> I think it's much harder. I don't think it's impossible um, and I can think of examples here where I think it would be important to actually counter false predictions. um my own work recently on policing is a great example, right the, this prediction that if you put more money into policing, then the crime is going to go down like we can discount we can discount that by showing the causal mechanisms involved and so on and so on so i you know I, yeah, I'm kind of wavering here, but um, I you know, but I I I think that um explanation can feed into predictions, and predictions could be useful. Um, so I, I take your point. I just think it's harder with causal explanations to to make predictions than it is with just trends, for example.
1: I was wondering, Naughty, you have your hand up and you can say whatever you wanted to say, but I wondered if you wanted to come back on the interpretation point, because it seemed to me that in your comments, you took up that sort of explanation versus interpretation classic version, but, but with a, a more complicated account, if you wanted to come back to that, but whatever you wanted to raise your hand on is also good.
3: Yeah, I can try and be quick and calm and do two points a two for two for one so i i wanted to just pick up on the false uh, explanation false prediction because i think partly what i'm advocating is that we also need to um, um contest false simplicity so i was really taken by julian's point about um explanation being utterly mundane and prevalent that we're explaining all the time you know with, with crime oh it must be because of um, uh, lack of policemen in the in the in the street um, but you know the fact that these kind of rush to explanations uh, are so prevalent and we know them to be often misguided that there is a complexity there's a multiplicity of factors um, uh, causality can work in many different directions that I do think that only offering contending explanations risks to play into the hands that, you know, complexity as such doesn't really have any public legitimacy. So I I, I don't quite agree that we live in a post positivist age and that I do think that complexity continues to be really lacking in uh, legitimacy in public discourse. When you say it's complex, I mean, that's as that, that could be as well as just saying, oh, um, I am not on the side of the public. That, that's how it sometimes uh, gets interpreted. So I do think that these issues around complexity are very important for us to, to affirm also in our public uh, discourse. On interpretation, just to make um, just a brief reaction is... You know, this classic statement that, you know, when when men believe things to be real, they are real uh, in their consequences by the the, um, uh, Thomases. Think what I'm talking about is uh, very much built on that, but it's different in the sense that I'm foregrounding the way in which science and um, technological infrastructures across society promote particular Um, forms of understanding so for for instance we've met we've we've referred to society as network and many of my students refer to society as network in a very straightforward way now this idea of society as as network is not just a belief It, it it comes about through structuration effects that also derive from science that derive from the material organization of our society and so it is those kind of complexities that, that I think I find really important to foreground when we ask, oh, why is X like this, that we need to undo the X and sh- show how it's you know, not, not just a natural reality out there.
1: We have an excellent question from the audience. Essie Coomson from the University of Chicago uh, and the LSE at the same time. Um, asks about the relationship between social scientific explanations and other types of explanations so as social scientists do we stay with our explanations. uh, Within the the social scientific realm or is there a space for using theories and understandings from other academic disciplines, including the natural sciences and applied scientists, perhaps. I can start, Melinda, to with asking Melinda about her thoughts on this one.
2: Yes, um, actually I saw that question and that was why I was putting up my hand. Um, and also the Andrasawa from Indonesia asks a question that I think I can link to it as well, too. Um, but before I start, I wanted to just um, address what Julian said about that book about the bell curve because I work in the area of social science genomics and how important it is to um, uh, uh, clarify very clearly that this research is false and incorrect Um, and we've done work on um, uh, reconstructing genetic essentialism and the problems there and I had quite some difficulties in convincing the the editors that I wanted to refer to that book but not cite it ever. (laughs) So, so uh, you can yeah, yeah, because you don't want to give that any more citations. Um, but uh, okay, so back to what you were asking about. I think that you know I I, I was thinking about that, and because I publish in health and genetics and um, um, economics and different topics in sociology, um, it's very interesting how different it is. So my geneticist first looked at the, the first draft of one of our sociology articles and he said why is the introduction so long? Why is there what is this theory? You know so it was a, it was a, it was an interesting sort of exposure as well to 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 understand that and in many of their eyes is if you can't exactly empirically test it you shouldn't be talking about it or or doing these underlying mechanisms that Mike was talking about before you know, if you can't test them. So that's quite a difference. But I think if you look at sort of innovation and there's some interesting papers coming out, it's always those ones that are on the sort of cusp and and looking at each other's uh, uh, disciplines as well that make some large sort of advances in our understanding. And then if I can just uh, link that in, if you don't mind, Monica, to the question, uh, this interesting question from Indonesia. Um, you know, looking at reproducibility. And I think that is an interesting one. And I discussed it today at the Royal Society with the mathematician as well, too. And this this idea, and I, you might remember this salty paper, I think it was in science that basically looked across the different disciplines and said, oh, social science research doesn't replicate. It's not re- reproducible. Um You know, and, and that's what a lot of us took away from from that article. But many people were frustrated because things don't can't be replicated in different countries for very clear reasons or in different social groups i mean it's just a substantive reason why you know we we love this rich context in this understanding so there's a reason it doesn't replicate so the social sciences were hammered there but if you really read the article too we were talking about it um it was the cancer studies actually that were the poorest in replication even though the social sciences were the ones that that we're focused on. So I think we have to, this replication and and reproducibility, we have these rich contexts that differ and path, well, Julian and Mike could say more, but this path dependence in this history, that means that you can study the same phenomenon and it will be different. Uh, The causal explanation description will be different. So that's kind of those two questions I wanted to discuss.
1: Thank you. A question uh, from, Fatma Gershek from the University of Michigan, causal explanation privilege knowledge of the powerful at the expense of experience. So causal variables inevitably reflect the knowledge of the powerful. Julian
0: I mean, It's unfortunate uh, she had to leave. She says she had to leave. Yeah, I'm um, sorry, I yeah, no, but that's okay. Um Oof, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that, and I, I you know we can we can create causal explanations that depend upon experience. right? I, I just don't see that those are oppositional. And the type of qualitative work that that I strive for and sort of historical qualitative work, some of the work um, the, the work that you know fellow eth- ethnographers do, I think that they can do a great job of enlisting an understanding of experience to explain. Now I think this is part of the thing that might be, you know, I think when a lot of people think about explanation, they do think about you're you're just posit- you're reducing everything to variables, and I think that this is the first thing we have to dispel, right? And I think that that's why you know uh, 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 maybe some of Andy's work in the '90s is great because what it what he's really critiquing, it seems to me, is variable-based explanations of reality, um, and those aren't the only types of explanations. A, that that are available. So that, that's the short answer to that, but I'm, I'm sure I have to, I'll have to uh, contact Mugane myself and have a chat with her about this.
1: And I, I think all of us would be glad to continue the conversation. Um,
4: Mike has his hand up.
1: Uh, Mike, yes.
4: Yeah, this, uh, it, um, it's not so much a response to a question, it's more reflections on what's being said and and these very interesting points from particularly from Nortra and Julian about, you know, we, we've all expl- sem- there are so many lay, lay explanations out there, aren't there? And there are so many kind of you know, people with explanations of what's going on. And I want to go back to this issue, which I raised about how we can be strategic, you know, so what what, are, what is the best way, if you like, of dispelling explanations, which we think are just plain wrong. So, and, and, you know, we all know the, the conspiracy theories are out there in a way which they weren't even 20 years ago and if you go around and say conspiracy theories about vaccinations for Covid or whatever take those over so how uh, I mean it's a very open question I don't really know the answer but how how do we persuade those people who have those who have those extreme conspiracy theories that they're wrong is it well I hold an alternative explanation saying no actually it's, it's to do with this or is it by some kind of more descriptive, well, if you think about this case, or if you look at this data, um, perhaps you see things a different way. Now, I suspect it's difficult to, to eclipse to, it, it, sadly, it's, I think it's very difficult. Either, either approach is not going to be easy. Um, my inclination would be, and perhaps there's research I don't know, that some kind of more, you know, rather, rather than asserting an alternative explanation, or is, is to actually unpack it and say, well, if you look at this, if you think about this and that, and What's going on here that might be more likely to do it but i think that that's really important is kind of how we engage with these lay explanations which a lot of the time are just you know crackers um and and think about how we can how we can lead a more productive conversation i think that's a, and i also agree with i think a theme which has been in this room that we shouldn't just become introspective about that we've got to use whatever we can i think to shift those conversations in a more productive direction.
2: I was just—I wrote a in the British Medical Journal. I think I was just looking up what it's called. I wrote a, an opinion piece: Should we criminalize those who spread misinformation about vaccines? So it's a very provocative piece, and I—you can imagine that I got some interesting emails <laughs> after that, and uh, and uh, some exchanges and some suggestions about what I should do with myself. Um, but that one was more trying to think about, um, you know, and it was again one of these for or against arguments. And I think, um, you know, morally, you feel like you should, but it won't work. You know, that was basically the conclusion that we came through, you know, and, and I think when it comes to this kind of misinformation, it comes down to these sort of, and, and Julian will understand this in the U.S., it's somehow equated with personal choice and libertarian attitudes, you know, and when we're dealing with these things such as vaccinations or face coverings, it's um it's not about your secondhand smoke you know it's it's not about your values <laughs> it's about your your rights it's about everyone's rights around you, um and it's about it's about protecting those around you and I think you know our feelings and our attitudes change so I think there's a lot of discussion around there and it's uh, in multiple topics not just around COVID or vaccines but you know. I think that, that polarizing, if you criminalize things or make them mandatory, you can polarize people and you can see very effective techniques that are more carrot than stick that are more effective. That would be my feeling.
1: I'm mindful of the time. So I will relay uh, one last uh, comment or question. I'm sorry, we we couldn't get to all the comments and questions. Stefan Fors from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden notes that in the epidemiological literature, it's been suggested that the framework for conducting, presenting, interpreting, and evaluating descriptive work has been less developed than the framework for causal inference. So, if that's true in the social sciences, would that be a reason why descriptive work is sometimes judged as being inferior to causal inference work? Um, it seems to me a point about sort of internal standardization helps with external um, credibility and relatively independently of what might be substantive um, criteria.
4: Yeah, I mean just on that I think so yeah I think that's, that's absolutely right There's, we don't have agreed um conventions, do we, about judging what is good description from bad description and it depends very much on what you're looking at and, and like that. that may be something to think about and so that's getting back to my example of Piketty and economists. Economist I mean they do have fairly rigorous account of how they got their data and what it the data consisted of and why it was why it might be valid and things and I think that is important so yeah, again when we get these we're uh, viewers back saying after it's just too descriptive. That often just means it's a bit random, and we're not—you know it doesn't actually stack together. So I do think it would probably be helpful for us to think more about what, what constitutes a good description rather than a bad description, um, and that, that would probably be a good, good, good approach.
1: Dave Eldavas of the. University of Loughborough has offered the summary, don't we all agree that social science must be explanatory, descriptive and also other things as well. I take the liberty to sort of conclude by saying I don't think we agree that it must be explanatory. Um, I I take Melinda's comments also as not quite agreeing um, with that. Um, but I take the invitation to, to, to just note some of the other things that have come up. Nortje mentioned articulation, description, um, correlation, exploration. Actually, that came from uh, 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 philip Bulbrecht from Glasgow. Um, uh, conjunctural explanations of different kinds of explanation, refuting bad explanations, refuting bad um, predictions. Um, and with that, and, and perhaps an invitation to, to extend the list and the conversation, I want to thank everyone for joining this conversation. I want to thank again the speakers very much. And I want to thank the colleagues at LSEQ who contributed to organising this and the Department of Sociology at the University of Trento, where I was visiting this evening. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you for listening.